The Common Good presents a special conversation with Steve Cole, author and journalist, on the CIA and America's secret wars in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, or host an event for the Common Good, which is, I think, a very unique organization. Um, it's described in a whole variety of different ways, and Patricia knows them all. But I would describe it as a place or a forum for civil, informed, nonpartisan conversation um, about key topics and civic or civil, informed, and nonpartisan have all become uh, very scarce attributes uh, to various different uh, opportunities to cover these important subjects. And again, I'm delighted that we're able to do this. Um, before introducing our speaker, I was um, uh, asked by the organizers to put in a plug uh, for a couple of events, well, one in particular, uh, which will be happening on May 21st. Uh, it's a half-day event. Um, it's entitled the Common Good Forum and American Spirit Awards. Uh, you wouldn't want to miss it. The topics uh, are the political landscape in 2018 and beyond, the economic outlook and the future of trade, the drug epidemic, critical national security issues, Iran, North Korea, Russia, China, cyber threats, and conflict zones, business and tech innovations, and citizen activism. And when we get done talking about those topics, we can cover anything else that people are, are interested in. Um, we are really uh, privileged to have Steve Cole um, with us. Uh, he is the author, of course, of Directorate uh, S, um, which is the book that many of you will have picked up. Um, a fascinating uh, work. Um, uh, Steve is the Dean of Columbia Journalism School. Uh, he's been that since 2013. Before that, he was president of the New America Foundation. Um, he's the author of eight nonfiction books, two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, um, and a former reporter, foreign correspondent, and senior editor of the Washington Post. He has been a staff writer at The New Yorker uh, since 2005, um, and he is um, going to talk to us about the new book. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ruben. Uh, thank you, Patricia, for making this possible. Um, Richard and uh, Tom, a great friend of Afghanistan, friends of mine, Harry, Ken. Really delighted to see Bernard after a long time. He was somebody I worked with very closely at New America and haven't seen in too long. So I'm, I'm glad for that occasion as well as the opportunity to talk about this book with you. I'm not going to talk for very long uh, because I'd prefer to hear your questions and comments. And uh, But I want to give you a sense of uh, the book, especially since it is um, something for a flight to Australia and you probably haven't had a chance to, to really dig into it uh, yet. Um, Let's start with the title. It refers to, um, I'm going to turn this off because I think I'm probably echoing with two different mics. Um, it refers to the covert action arm of Pakistani intelligence, ISI, and the difficulty that the United States has had across three administrations of doing something about Pakistan's interference in the Afghan war. Uh, despite uh, a gradual realization that it would be very difficult to stabilize Afghanistan unless uh, this part of the puzzle was resolved. And uh, while the book covers quite a lot more than the covert action arm of ISI, that, that problem lays at the heart of the history. And the book opens where it's, it's intended as a second volume of a book that I brought out a um, long time in 2004 called Ghost Wars which covered the run-up to 9-11 from the Soviet invasion until September 10th, 2001. So this book starts where that one ends, on the eve of 9-11, and then comes forward to something like the present day. And uh, it's set in the same triangle as the first volume, the United States 
Pakistan and Afghanistan. And uh, it uses many of the same kind of narrative approaches and, and kind of investigative reporting approaches. The book has four sections, which will give you a sense of the arc of the 17 years. And then I'll turn to trying to give you a flavor for what's, what are the big themes in this history and some of the kind of characters and episodes that illustrate the themes. Um, the first section is called Blind in the Battle, which covers the period from 9-11 until December 2001. And uh, it ends with Al-Qaeda's escape from Tora Bora and the vanquishing of the Taliban, but the, the sense of, of an absence of a plan, of a serious plan to stabilize and rebuild what was then one of the very poorest countries in the world. The second section is called Losing the Peace, which covers the period from 2002 to 2006, where the United States went off to fight a disastrous war in Iraq, uh, gradually tried to turn security in Afghanistan over to NATO, uh, never really invested in reconstruction in a serious way, and then discovered circa 2005-2006 that despite a lot of political and constitutional success in Afghanistan, that the Taliban were back in action. And it also looked like ISI was back in action as well, supporting the Taliban. Uh, and then the third section is called uh, the best intentions, which was the period between the last years of the Bush administration and the first years of the Obama administration, where two presidents, essentially within the limits of their understanding and resources, said, well, we're going to get this right now. And they started to invest in a big way in the war. Uh, and at the peak of the Obama administration surge, there were 150,000 international combat troops in Afghanistan, 100,000 Americans. And then the last section is called the end of illusion, where the United States and its allies come to terms with the fact that the war is turning into a grinding stalemate, that the problem of Pakistan looks insolvable, and that their own appetite for sacrifice, uh, both militarily and economically, is uh, diminishing, as is the attitudes, uh, uh, the resilience of the publics in uh, Europe and, and even in the United States. So that's the central arc of the history. It's a, it's a story in which, um, it tries to unpack uh, and excavate the decisions and the, and the critical moments that caused the United States and its allies to struggle so badly with the goals they had set out to achieve in Afghanistan, to the extent they could even define what those goals were. And uh, it tries to address through narrative and investigative reporting the, the answer to the question of, of why we're still there why it has been such a struggle, why the war has ended up in this stalemate. And so for kind of purposes of introduction, I think I'll just give you four themes that kind of recur in the, in the narrative history. Obviously, that 17 years is a long and diverse uh, period. <clears throat> but there are some problems that keep coming back around. One is the problem of war aims. What is it that we're there to achieve, and why is it that the sacrifices that the United States and its NATO allies are making, why do those justify the kinds of interests that would justify sending young men and women to war or the expenditure of such great sums of uh, aid? And um, the second theme that keeps coming back into the narrative is the failure of, of our uh, relationship with Hamid Karzai, who was president through much of this history. But beyond him, the failure of our investments in Afghan democratic politics more, more broadly. The third uh, theme involves the, the kind of illusions that informed our big counterinsurgency war, the almost sort of bubble of faith that arose uh, after the surge into Baghdad in the capacity of the United States and NATO to successfully carry out uh, a big counterinsurgency war in a, in a country like Afghanistan. And finally, there's the, the failure of political and diplomatic strategy um, that, in fact, almost all of these themes, other than perhaps counterinsurgency uh, doctrine, uh, remain present in the struggle that, that continues today. So let me talk first about war aims uh, briefly. One of the problems with this history as a, as a narrator was that 
you could go back to the key decisions and they would typically be hashed out in the Eisenhower Executive Office Building in the classified conference room next door to the West Wing or in the Situation Room. There were more than half a dozen strategy and policy reviews that took place in the Bush administration, the Obama administration, and the, now there was one that happened in the first year of the Trump administration, very similar terms. And there's a kind of repetitive quality to these uh, reviews. They start out with a lot of intelligence briefings and maps. Here's the shape of the war. Here's the demography of the war. Here's where the war looks stalemated. And here are some new ideas. Here are some ideas about how we can reset our strategy and make some progress. But one of the, the problems that kept recurring was essentially what are the vital interests of the United States that justify asking young men and women to go over and risk life and limb uh, at war. And a typical problem was where did the Taliban fit in, in defining our interests in the war? Are the Taliban really an enemy of the United States? Taliban said, we're only fighting you because you're, you're in our country. Many others would argue the Taliban were enough of an ally of al-Qaeda to justify seeing them as, a, as an international counterterrorism threat, even though there were no Afghans on the planes on 9-11. And they would go back and forth in the Situation Room about this question. There was a, there's a scene in the Situation Room during the Obama period. President Obama really did not want to fight a big war against the Taliban. He didn't believe it could be won on an acceptable timeline or at an acceptable cost. But the military felt that it was necessary and they kept bringing their case into these policy debates. And there's a scene where uh, the White House side of the table says, you know, I don't think we've ever really promised that we would defeat the Taliban. Uh, and, and Bob Gates is in the room, the holdover defense secretary, he said, yes, well, they're part of Afghanistan. They really can't be defeated on the battlefield. And the Joint Chiefs type uh, the Joint Chiefs representatives at the table go away. They come back the next day with a huge PowerPoint deck with all the, the statements that American political leaders, including presidents, have made again and again about their intention to defeat the Taliban. And they basically argue, well, um, you may not want to be committed to this war, but in fact, you have said that, you're, uh, that you intend to win it. In that same set of reviews in 2009, very serious-minded people, increasingly well-informed and, and no longer suffering from illusions about, for example, Pakistan's intent in the war. Um, they keep coming back in a hard-headed way to what are America's vital interests in the war, truly vital interests. And they eventually land on two. One is Al-Qaeda, which is still present along the Afghan-Pakistan border, still carrying out international attacks, even sponsoring attacks in New York City, it must be uh, suppressed. And that is a vital interest of ours. And the second is that we don't want Pakistan to fall apart and to have its nuclear weapons fall into the wrong hands, of which there are many wrong hands in Pakistan. But think about it. In 2009, neither of those two vital interests was in Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda had already left Afghanistan for, for Pakistan and was on the Pakistan side of the border. And of course, Pakistan's nuclear weapons are in Pakistan. Well, President Obama and his advisors were smart enough to see this gap in logic. So why are we surging 150,000 combat troops next door to the country that contains our vital interests? The argument that they eventually, the rationale they eventually came around to was, well, if we don't, Afghanistan will fall apart and Al-Qaeda will come back. But it's quite an indirect and even convoluted reason to ask uh, American or European soldiers to go to war. So Hamid Karzai, one of the things about, that I really enjoyed about this book was, you know, I had been kind of a beat, beat reporter in the war after, in a magazine sense, um, after 2005. I'd been a beat reporter as a newspaper correspondent in an earlier era, and I went back for the New Yorker regularly. And I had covered Hamid Karzai for a long time. I had interviewed him, seen him at press conferences, and 
felt like I understood him. And I was, of course, struck by the narrative that, as one of his advisors put it uh, to him while they were walking in a palace garden in 2009 or 2010, he said, you know, you used to be, in the American narrative, you used to be the Afghan Mandela, and now you're the Afghan Mugabe. And it's, uh, it's a little unfair. Um, we appreciate that. But he was becoming erratic and untethered, and um, the book describes in quite a lot of detail uh, his speech and conduct in private that was the basis for this reputation that he was acquiring. But there's, but there's something that, that um, I could see after trying to document meeting after meeting and counter after counter with the United States that wasn't so obvious to me when I was sort of a beat reporter, which was that in one important respect, uh, Karzai was very consistent, and so was his cabinet, in his relationship with the United States. And it was the inability of the United States to hear what he was saying consistently and respond to it that contributed to his deepening frustration and even his paranoia about the United States. And that is to say, when you go back and look at the private meetings he held with American presidents, American secretaries of state, visiting intelligence officers, once even when candidate Obama arrived in the summer of 2008, the whole cabinet, uh, which was factional and full of rivalries, they all had a pre-meeting. And they said, look, this guy could become president. Let's make sure we have just one message for him. And they delivered the same message that Karzai had delivered as his first talking point in virtually every meeting I could find you know, contemporary documentation about in private with the Americans, which is, why aren't you doing something about ISI? Why aren't you doing something about Pakistan's interference in the war? Why do you allow the Taliban to enjoy such fruitful sanctuary and support across the border? This was the first talking point in Karzai's meeting with the Americans starting circa 2004. And when the cabinet, this factionalized cabinet, got together and said, what is the one thing we're going to say to President Obama? They all agreed, everyone will say, you should pay more attention to Pakistan. You should pay more attention to I. And they all did. They all went around the table and, and left him with a very deep impression. Of course, Karzai took it for granted that the United States, as the world's unrivaled superpower, could change Pakistan's conduct if it wished to do so. Of course, the situation was more complicated than that. Pakistan was suffering from the worst period of domestic terrorism and instability that it had ever known as a result of al-Qaeda coming over the border, of course, as the result of ISI cultivating these groups domestically for many years. A lot of reasons, but Pakistan was highly unstable during this period, even, even more violent in some years than Afghanistan was. So there was, in fact, an, a limit that, of the, to the pressure the United States could put on Pakistan in this period, 2009-2010. But Karzai took it for granted that the US could do something about it if it wanted to. And when we failed to reckon with this problem or to, to change it, um, he sunk into conspiracy theory thinking, which is you know, kind of common in the region. And his thinking was, well, if they're not going to do something about the problem of Pakistan, then it must be because they, they want ISI to destabilize Afghanistan in order to justify having a long-term American military presence. Now, the Americans would say, no, that's nonsense, Mr. President. And he would say, well, then explain to me why you don't change this equation. And it got deeply frustrating for the American side negotiating with him over things like the long-term military relationship after the surge was over. And there's this one scene where James Dobbins, who was one of the architects of the Bonn Agreement and later a special envoy to Afghanistan, in 2013, he goes out to try to break this mindset uh, that President Karzai is still holding on to. And he says to him, Mr. President, you know, by now you have all the WikiLeaks documents. You have all the Edward Snowden materials. I mean, you literally have millions of, of pages of classified American foreign policy documents. Can you see in those documents any trace of the conspiracy that you're, that you're telling me is at the heart of what we're doing? And Karzai kind of half smiles at him and says, well, maybe you don't know the plan. <laughs> Maybe there is a deep state in the United States, he said. So we confused our friends. Uh, we confused many Afghans about our priorities in the war. Another contradiction in the relationship with Karzai was that we would, of course, go in ambassador after ambassador, secretary after secretary, and say, Mr. President, you're the sovereign leader of Afghanistan. We're here at your uh, 
you know, with your permission, in partnership with you, but we recognize you, you, are, in, you are the constitutional leader of Afghanistan. Your, your decisions are the ones that we will, we will follow. And then he would say, okay, I'd like you to change the way you're fighting the war. I would like you to come out of villages. I'd like you to hunker down on bases. I'd like you to stop doing night raids. I'd like you to concentrate on the border with Pakistan. I'd like you to go over the border into Pakistan and do something about where this is coming from. And the generals would listen to all of that and say, thank you very much, Mr. President. And they would withdraw and then go back to fighting the war that they had organized. No wonder he became disillusioned. So the counterinsurgency war, I, I think we all probably remember that period, if we were in Washington anyway, um, when after the surge into Baghdad, 2007-2008, where it appeared that uh, counterinsurgency doctrine as defined as kind of close quarters, urban, civil military strategy with an attempt to defeat insurgents, uh, both violently but also through um, an attempt to convert them into security forces, pay them off, different strategies. That this was a kind of bubble of military doctrine around 2008, 2009. It was a bubble every bit as much as, you know, tulips or Bitcoin. Everyone was walking around Washington with copies of old French counterinsurgency manuals. And there was a belief that um, this, these insights that had been developed in Iraq could be applied in, Af in Afghanistan. Um, and, of course, you know, it didn't, it didn't, turn, it didn't turn out that way. Um, the cost of the war that was borne by the volunteers, the enlisted men, the NCOs, the, the young officers, uh, was most heavy in this period, and there's a chapter in the book that describes a campaign west of Kandahar in 2010 where I think something like 60% of a, of a, um, a company uh, that I follow was uh, retired for medical reasons and uh, uh, it was a war in which on the ground you had to step out into um, booby-trapped uh, and often uh, impenetrable foliage and because of the advances in combat medicine uh, and the nature of these IEDs that uh, soldiers were constantly encountering you know the survival rates in terms of deaths in combat were very high but the losses of limbs and the se severe medical uh, medical retirement for life kinds of injuries mostly losses of limbs uh, were just extraordinarily high and there was a sense of not remembering, uh, somehow losing a grip on the lessons of uh, the Vietnam War in this, in this period. There's a, you know, Richard Holbrook is a big figure in the book, a uh, complicated figure in the book. I, I, th I think I tried to give a, an honest uh, evidence-led reading of where he failed and where he was right. But of course, one of the things that happened to him, he was the first special envoy to Pakistan and Afghanistan appointed by um, President Obama. He had been Hillary Clinton's principal foreign policy advisor during that bitter 2008 campaign. And even though Clinton and Obama had reconciled and developed a, a good professional working relationship, their staffs never really did. And uh, in addition, Holbrook suffered from his being a kind of large personality and Obama uh, not appreciating his, his kind of gestures, his self-references, his way of uh, framing things. And uh, one of the things that annoyed uh, the president very early on was uh, Holbrook's references to Vietnam, where he had served in, as a junior foreign officer or a civil servant in, uh, early in his career. And uh, he, he could see the parallels between the advice President Obama was getting and the advice Johnson had gotten and that the, the illusions of um, kind of the military strategy were evident to Holbrook but, and eventually very quickly evident to Obama, but nonetheless they weren't uh, doing something about this runaway kind of train. And um, there was, and, and Holbrook was chagrined that he had so annoyed Obama by constantly talking about Vietnam. And, uh, 
uh, in fact, it, it was, it, he annoyed the president so much that instructions were sent over to the State Department through Hillary Clinton to tell him never to talk about Vietnam again in front of the president. Just didn't want to hear it. And, uh, and I was talking to Holbrook in real time during this period, like a lot of reporters. Uh, he was one of those people in Washington who you would say was good for journalism. And um, I had my own kind of diaries and recordings of conversations uh, from that time that I could draw on for the book. And in one of them, he'd just come out of a uh, meeting at the White House where he had been scolded again for talking about the lessons of Vietnam. And he was really, you know, he was, he was chagrined. He was, he was mortified that he, he could see that he was losing access, losing influence, and uh, that this was a, an important reason. And he said, you know, I sort of understand. But, and, then, and then there's a kind of a beat in the transcript, and he says, but they shouldn't be so afraid of history. And he was right about that. Um, political strategy, finally. One of the contradictions in, in US policy, particularly less so in European policy, but it was the US that was really driving the, the train after 2007 or 8, um, was that almost every American military commander who would go out to uh, Afghanistan for one-year rotations or two-year rotations would say in public, this is not a war that's going to be won on the battlefield. There's not going to be a big surrender ceremony or a signing ceremony. Ultimately, this war is going to have to end in some kind of political accommodation, some kind of negotiation. Um, it was, I think, David Petraeus, the sort of father of the counterinsurgency moment in um, army doctrine, who said, you can't capture and kill your way out of an industrial strength insurgency, referring to the war that he was fighting in Afghanistan. And yet, the Obama administration, um, in particular, would resource military strategy at the expense of diplomatic and political strategy again and again. The war was so siloed within the Obama administration, I found it dispiriting to go back and really unpack the way uh, policy was made and then executed across these agencies. And you know, it's a typical problem of U.S. Uh, military national security policy that you can have an interagency agreement about the broad outlines of an approach, and it might have a diplomatic component, and it might have a military component, but the guidance gets written at the White House in a fairly vague way. Typically, it comes back down to the Pentagon and the CIA, and, and then they just run their own, their own policies. And this was particularly exacerbated uh, during the height of the Afghan war, where the Pentagon had its war, the CIA had its drone war across the border in Pakistan, and a small uh, negotiating cell, super compartmented and not known to many other parts of the government, called the Conflict Re Resolution Cell, was set up at the White House to try to negotiate with the Taliban. The book describes a very interesting two and a half year negotiation that unfolded between the United States and the Taliban's political commission. It ultimately ended in failure in 2013. But these things were not connected together. And they, in some cases, didn't even know uh, that the CIA's war was super compartmented because it was a covert action, a kind of a secret air war being fought mostly by armed drones. And the Pentagon wasn't fully briefed about the negotiations uh, with, the, with the Taliban, except at the very highest levels, and even then only occasionally. Um, and so there's this scene where they're setting up uh, their first meeting with the, with the Taliban's political commissioner, young man named Tayabaga. They've been studying him for a while. They've been trying to figure out if he's the real deal. They conclude that a time has come to start a negotiation that would ultimately end in a big political uh, negotiation. And the Germans have been talking to this, this guy, Tayabaga, trying to get the Americans to talk to him as well. And there's a German diplomat named Michael Steiner who's been setting up this first encounter. It's going to be held at a safe house in uh, Munich, protected by the German intelligence uh, service in the fall of 2010. And just as the last weeks are uh, unwinding and the planning is finishing up, Steiner comes to the Obama White House and he says, you know, there's one, one last wrinkle. Tayabaga has told me that he's quite worried that if he comes to this meeting, he's going to be snatched and sent off to Guantanamo. 
he points out that a number of his other Afghan comrades have come to meetings with the United States, with the CIA, and been snatched and sent off to Guantanamo. And uh, so the senior National Security Council uh, advisor working on this goes to President Obama and says, relays Steiner's message, and, and Obama says, look, give Steiner my personal guarantee, have him relay it to Tayabaga that this is from me, Barack Obama, President of the United States, He's not going to be snatched if he comes to this meeting. We're just going to talk. And if he, you know, however it goes, the BND is going to put him back on that plane and he's going to fly back to Qatar and he's going to be safely back where he started. So the National Security Council duly relays this message through Steiner. And then the last week before the meeting, the National Security Council staff gets together and they have their own kind of preparatory meeting. And they say, you know what? Let's not tell the CIA about the time of the meeting, the place of the meeting, or the tail number of the BND plane that he's going to be on, just in case there's some kind of automated snatch machine down in the system that we don't know about and that we can't stop, because we would hate for the president's personal guarantee to be overtaken by some unpredicted raid. When I heard that story, and I mean, it's, it's a true story, um, I just thought, wow, as a, that makes me nervous as a citizen, <laughs> that even the White House would not be sure that they could um, keep that promise. Anyway, um, I'll stop. I, I want uh, you know, to, to say that this has been uh, going on for 17 years. The Trump administration carried out a policy review in its first year in office that had many of the same dimensions and and uh, intelligence briefings as the reviews through in, back into the second term of the Bush administration. One of the intelligence products that's often briefed at these uh, Afghan strategy reviews is a CIA map. Uh, it's called the District Assessments. And it's, a, it's an analytical product that was built by a, a little military analysis team inside the CIA. And it was derived from something that they had been attempted during the Vietnam War called the Hamlet Evaluation System, which was an attempt to show like, who controlled what during the Vietnam War. And so the, the map shows the approximately 400 administrative districts in Afghanistan. And it gives each a different color, depending on whether it's government controlled, Taliban controlled, contested, or locally controlled by someone else. And these were first created uh, in 2007. They've been updated every six months. And essentially, the map hasn't changed across all this time. Um, you know, the, the colors have shifted a little bit here and there. But the, but the basic stalemate has remained the same, despite a surge of 150,000 international combat troops, the withdrawal of those troops, the, the surge of Afghan forces taking the lead, now taking very heavily casualties. Why is this stalemate embedded? It, from a military perspective, partly it's because the Taliban have no air force, no answer to the US Air Force, which may be eventually become the Afghan Air Force. So they can't mass without getting bombed to smithereens. It's very difficult for them to take cities that the US Air Force wants them to stop, prevent uh, from them from taking, or to hold them. But on the other hand, uh, neither the US nor the Afghan forces have been able to take back me, you know, and sustain uh, the uh, control of the large portions of the countryside that the Taliban own. So that's, that's kind of a structural stalemate as, as well as a, um, a kind of political one. So I'm, I'm afraid that you know, in 2021, for a bunch of reasons, when if President Trump is re-inaugurated or the next president of the United States is, is uh, inaugurated, we're, we'll still be at this war. So thank you for listening. <laughs> Let's start on this side, yes. Um, I covered Vietnam at ABC News, so I was in the Obama administration. My question to you is, you haven't mentioned secretaries of state at all, particularly Hillary Clinton. Holbrook reported to her. Can you, is your book, you know, reviewing the secretaries of state? Or is it primarily the military, CIA, Department of Defense? Um, because other than Holbrook, you haven't mentioned any diplomacy. No, there's a lot of the State Department in it. I mean, Holbrook's office was the was the main diplomatic um, effort 
for the two years that he was alive until he died in 2010. Then that, the office that he had set up became diminished. And his relationship with the secretary and the secretary's relationship with the interagency debates is an element, um, uh, you know, important part of the story. Um, I think the secretary was reluctant um, to um, take positions in the interagency that could come back to haunt her if she ran for president. And uh, I, I think that kind of shows up in some of the intersections where she and Holbrook are trying to figure out how to manage their position. She did emphasize um, you know, civilian and diplomatic issues at, with a lot of vigor, and she argued for the State Department's role in Afghanistan very vigorously. But on the core you know, question of the dominance of the military strategy during those years, um, there was no dissent about counterinsurgency doctrine. I used to, I went, when I was reporting, I went around the whole U.S. intelligence bureaucracy looking for that handful of like INR analysts or somebody who has, in, like in the weapons of mass destruction story, like there was somebody in the system who said this is wrong. And I remember sitting down with some, some INR analysts late in my reporting and saying, you're my last stop. Did you write a dissent memo about the counterinsurgency surge? And they said, gosh, we really, we could sit around and talk about this all the time. We really wish we had, but we didn't. <laughs> we got rolled over too. So um, anyway, uh, yes. Uh, thank you so much for speaking today. Um, my question is actually about uh, Pakistan. Um, I was uh, lucky enough to work briefly on the Hill, working with a lot of Afghanistan, Pakistan issues, CBAR, and other things. And um, I guess something I noticed while I was working there is there seemed, I wonder, generally speaking, how we could potentially influence Pakistan or maybe get them to be more amenable or open to actually assisting us. Because from what I saw firsthand is um, when we get people like Zardari, Jalani, Khan, they were almost ignored, and then you have Pasha Kayani, people from ISI, and the general himself, and it seemed like they had so much more influence. Do we emphasize the politicians more than the military? The politicians are, there's a bit of corruption there. If you look at Abu Sharif now, that's not much more promising. Do we try to help them develop a greater civil society? Because they're lacking there. Do we steer them away from China? I just have a lot of ideas, and I'm wondering what the most impactful <laughs> change is. We go back to Reagan, I mean, yeah. not much has happened in Doha, so. Yeah. No, I mean, you're right. I mean, there's a lot of, um, all of, uh, both of, both of the administrations that wrestled with the Pakistan problem, uh, wrestled with the problem that they wanted on the one hand to promote greater civilian control over the country's foreign policy, um, but on the other hand, realism meant that you couldn't really waste your time uh, negotiating around issues in, involving Afghanistan with civilians that couldn't influence what was actually happening. And, and so there, was, there were sometimes strange protocol solutions where the president wouldn't uh, schedule a meeting with the army chief who was visiting Washington for fear of appearing to deal with him as a head of state, but then would accidentally drop by a meeting where the army chief was there and then go to a private conversation and so forth. I mean, it was uh, a, a repeated entanglement. But the, you know, the larger question, um, I think, you know, unfolds over the course of the, of the book. Uh, it's probably too big to digest. But um, the US did try in 2010 and 2000, in 2010. And this was one of Holbrook's big ideas. Um, uh, and he had an ally in Mike Mullen, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs to try to break the dysfunction and the lying and the, and the um, manipulation that went on on both sides of the relationship um, by embracing uh, Kayani and Pasha and trying to draw out of them exactly what their end state was in Afghanistan that they would be willing to accept. And it was a painful uh, effort. Um, it went on you know, in different forms for several years, even after Holbrook's death. Eventually, Kayani does make these kind of disclosures about what it is he's really looking for. And they, make, they start to make some admissions about the truth of their relationship with the Taliban and so forth. But um, it was a combination of the US not having the capacity to negotiate in a sophisticated way around uh, this mess, and um, also external events. Bin Laden, uh, Shakala, 
uh, Raymond Davis. I mean, there were so many shocks to the relationship that involved politics in both countries that some kind of uh, deeper effort to tell the truth and see if there were enough, there was enough common ground to stabilize Afghanistan um, was never materialized. Um, yes, in the back. No, from here. Given that you have a deep knowledge of the subject, if you had total control over U.S. foreign policy, what should be our objectives in Afghanistan? How would you achieve them? <laughs> I'm just a writer, man. Come on. <laughs> just trying to tell you what happened. Uh, well, I mean, I, I'm not uh, an advocate for immediate withdrawal from Afghanistan at all. I feel like um, you know, Afghans deserve better than what we've given them. It's a testament to their resilience that they've put up, put up with all the errors and, and sideways uh, mistakes that we've made. Um, I do think that uh, the one um, road to reduced violence in Afghanistan that if you look at compar comparable politics and, you know, just global history over the last 30 or 40 years, 30 or 40 years, the one road that has really not been attempted in a serious, sophisticated, all-hands way is a political track to try to figure out what's possible. And that doesn't mean a peace settlement with the Taliban necessarily. It just means an attempt to reduce the violence, keep civilians out of the war, stabilize the economy to the extent possible, stabilize uh, the kind of social landscape to the, to the extent possible. I've been reading, I read a couple of histories of the Lebanese Civil War recently. It's very interesting. I, was, I, I didn't appreciate that two parties in that war during the 70s, 80s, and 90s um, that would never in our lifetimes conceivably reconcile with one another, that is to say Hezbollah and the State of Israel, nonetheless negotiated at a critical phase of the war, the so-called Rules of the Road Agreement, where they essentially agreed to keep their civilians out of the war, each, each other's civilians out of the war. And so, and they really kept to it. I mean, occasionally someone would break the bargain and they, they, everyone would flip out and say, uh-oh, we're going to go back to total war again. And they would, no, no, we're going to just... And a whole generation of Israelis in northern Israel grew up uh, under the guns of Hezbollah's artillery uh, capacity, but never uh, disrupted by it. And, and a whole generation of Shia in southern Lebanon grew up similarly. And, you know, they went to school, they got married. Eventually, political settlements and political change evolved out of those reductions of violence. Um, but there are, there are forms of stabilization that precede political settlements that haven't even really been attempted in a serious and smart way in Afghanistan. And when, if you get to know the generation of Afghans that has come of age, especially in the cities, since 2001, you know, people Tom Freston knows very well, you know, they're a very inspiring generation. It is literally true that there has never been a generation of Afghans like the one that's now kind of under 30, under 35, in Kabul, in other cities, that grew up in, you know, connected to the world, uh, with access to um, global identity as well as Afghan identity. And they're nationalistic, too. I mean, the one thing Pakistan has achieved in Afghanistan, it's not achieved its goals, um, but it has achieved the, the intensifying of Afghan nationalism against Pakistan. And, and even with all of the factionalism and, the, and, and uh, kind of ethnic um, uh, sort of mobilization that you can see in Afghan politics, nonetheless, there is still a there there. And, and, um, and there's, there's good reason to have uh, faith that it, that it could be the basis for reductions in violence and, and, and forms of stabilization. So anyway, that's my best, uh, best answer. Yes? Could we have, um, this is obviously a counterfactual, but could we have defined our objectives in such a way back in 2001 that there would not have been such misalignment between what Pakistan was trying to do and what we were trying to do. Could we have aligned interests if we had defined our objectives differently? Uh, possibly, possibly. Um, the, you know, I, you, you concede the 
point that your question is rooted in a counter is a counterfactual question, and I'm probably like your skepticism. I, I'm not a big believer in counterfactual history because I don't think that's the way, the way the world is organized. But you have to ask the question: Was there a period where, if we had done things differently, we might have gotten a better outcome? Maybe not a great outcome, but a better outcome. Uh, um, and I think, to me. The answer to that question is not so much in the objectives articulated in the, in the heated aftermath of 9-11, when the purpose of the war in Afghanistan was primarily to disrupt al-Qaeda, about which the United States knew evidently far too little. And the reason to go in fast and to go in you know, loose with militias was basically to get the al-Qaeda planning cycle that had come so become so devastatingly clear on September 11th, get it disrupted, get Al-Qaeda thinking about something else, get them moving, because there was an assumption that there were other planning cycles. You know, that 9-11 that attack was 18 months in the making and a lot of border crossing. It was, maybe there's three or four more of these, so we better disrupt. And when you, it was interesting, because on the book tour I'd go out and on radio shows, the host would often play President Bush's speech to Congress and the nation, I think it was like September 21 or something like that. And it's interesting, you know, we remember that as a period of national resolve and unity, and, and he, was, he was going to go after uh, the, those who had attacked us. But if you listen to his, with the benefit of all this time, when you listen to what he actually says about the Taliban, he's still kind of not really saying we're going to defeat the Taliban. He's actually still negotiating with them in the speech. He says, you know, you still have time to get out of the way. Uh, we know you're not the people who attacked us, but you're harboring the people who attacked us, so if, unless you do something about it, we're going to, but it's already the ambiguity of whether the Taliban are in or out of the war is right there in the first speech. Um, so anyway, long way of saying, I think the opportunity was 2002 to 2005. That, that is where we failed. If we had an opportunity to do better, there's so many things that we didn't do. Uh, we didn't build Afghan security forces in a serious way to take over uh, the, uh, the stability of the country. Um, you, you look at the history of that training effort in those early years, and it's really pathetic. Um, the amount of money we invested in reconstruction was also pathetic. And the people involved in it knew it. Part of the reason was ideological. The Bush administration and Secretary Rumsfeld in particular had a conviction that we shouldn't be building, um, rebuilding, nation building. Part of it though was Iraq. Uh, there's a scene in the summer of 2002 where Stanley McChrystal comes into Afghanistan to kind of staff up this task force that's mostly counterterrorism, but it's also connected to the embassy and US policy. And they get called off to a meeting in Brussels. They come back in June of 2002. They all say to each other, oh, we're going to war in Iraq. Don't build anything here. Um, and the distractions, the drain on resources, and then, of course, the quagmire that the Iraq war became drew the US off. And I think, finally, it had something to do with something that I think, if you're really granular about this history, is still sort of a mystery, which is, why did the ISI decide? Why did General Musharraf and his core commanders, using the ISI as an instrument, decide circa 2005 to facilitate the Taliban's return? Um, now, if you ask Afghans who were watching Pakistan during that time why they think Musharraf essentially flipped, without telling President Bush, his best friend, of course. I think he was at the same time going to Davos and going on the John Stewart show for his book and so forth. But clearly something happened there. Now, you know, there's a good Afghan analysis, which is, well, it was really about our success in building a, a new constitutional order between 2002 and 2005. So we had the Bonn Agreement. We, had, we successfully uh, wrote a constitution. We successfully had a presidential election. We had parliamentary elections. They saw the Afghan state consolidating. They saw India's support. They saw the international community's support for an Afghan state that was consolidating in their neighborhood. And they didn't feel like they had enough purchase on it. So they decided to go back and just basically take it away from us. OK, that's a valid, um, that's one valid element. I think it was part of the answer. But if you ask Pakistanis why this happened, I mean, in the army, people who were in the discussions, 
They'll say two other things. They, they won't sort of say, well, we wanted to take over Afghanistan. They'll, they'll both say two other things. First one was, because of Iraq and the demand that it placed on our military forces as the war went bad after the fall of 2003, we decided in order to um, have a kind of all-in posture in Iraq to turn security in Afghanistan over to NATO allies. And we sold the Canadians on a peacekeeping mission in Kandahar. We sold the Brits on Helmand. We sold the Dutch on Uruzgan. And everyone thought that this was going to be a light peacekeeping operation. And the Pakistanis saw this happening. And they said, oh, we're already in the post-American war. We've, been, we've seen this movie before. You left last time you came in very abruptly. You're leaving again. You're, you're, you're out of here. So we've got to get back to managing our own interests. And that's through the Taliban. Finally, there was one other element, which was in this same period, we did this big strategic nuclear deal with India. Right? So why does, Af why does Pakistan care about Afghanistan at all? It's because they, don't, they see Indian influence around every boulder, and they want to manage that um, backyard of their own um, so that India uh, can't undermine them. And we did this big nuclear deal with India in which we essentially forgave India for breaking out of the nuclear non-proliferation regime, promised them you know, pretty much unlimited civilian nuclear aid. And we told Pakistan at the same time, our major non-NATO ally, our partner in the global war on terrorism, our partner in the Afghan war, we told them, by the way, you're not getting this deal because you're not reliable enough. Because in fact, you have a record of massive nuclear smuggling to Ray Khan. And the Pakistani kind of high command essentially took all this in. And they said to themselves, you know, um, you've made yourselves clear. India is your strategic partner for the 21st century. Makes sense to us. You've got China and other things. We, you know, we understand. But you've made yourselves clear. That's the choice you've made. So we're just a transaction. And why should we then not manage our interests in our own neighborhood the way we always have. And, and that I think all three of those things happened in that period. And before we knew it, we were in um, an insurgency that was so fully resourced and protected by the Pakistan sanctuary toward the end of 2006 that you know there's a chapter of a title that quotes a Canadian general who they find themselves in this huge counterinsurgency fight that they never expected, wasn't politically sustainable at home. And he said, this war is now like digging a hole in the ocean. That was true in 2006, and it, and it hasn't changed much since then. Richard. Steve, what would you say is the American interest Well, there's a big counterterrorism problem in the region, and um, the generals who argue for continued American presence there mostly frame it in a counterterrorism uh, picture. There's a branch of the Islamic State in eastern Afghanistan. There's, a, there's an Al-Qaeda branch that's now, one of the things that's happened in the region since, I don't know when you were last in Pakistan, but um, you know, in the era of uh, Benazir Bhutto's assassination and then the terrible descent of 2009-2010, when tens of thousands of Pakistanis died in internal violence, Pakistani Taliban started insurgency against the Pakistani state, um, Al-Qaeda was involved. Since then, Pakistan has gotten a grip again on its own security. And one of the ways it's done it is by pushing a lot of the remnant irreconcilable groups that wouldn't cooperate with the Pakistani state back into Afghanistan or deliberately seeding them there to destabilize Afghanistan. Eastern Afghanistan today is an absolute mess. Um, so there is a CT interest. It doesn't require 15,000 troops necessarily. Um, and you know the stability of Afghanistan over the next 20 or 30 years is not only in the interest of the United States, but it's also in the interests of everybody in the region. That's part of the reason why the, the sort of failure of vision about diplomatic and political strategy is, at least I find it frustrating, because um, if you step back and look at the map, um, if setting aside some difficulties in great power relations among us, the Chinese, and the Russians, if you look out over the next 20 or 30 years, everybody in the neighborhood has an interest in a more stable uh, Afghanistan. Right? China does. It's in their backyard. They've got a problem of domestic restiveness in the West that's partly a cross-border problem related to Afghanistan. Pakistan does. 
uh, Iran, India, even Russia, except that you know it just wants to do anything that will um, destabilize our position. So, yeah. Yes. Uh, so I have lived in both the countries uh, for like a decade in Pakistan and a decade uh, in the US. Both these countries are like. So interestingly, the era that you are mentioning in your book, I have lived in Pakistan at that time. Uh, and what I observed was, and I was fortunate enough to experience it firsthand, but there was not a single day when there was. Um, suicide bombing in Pakistan, Pakistan, um, which we have uh, immediately termed, uh, as I may say, as an internal situation. In my assessment, uh, since I was there on the ground, I have seen uh, uh, something like 50,000 odd people die in Pakistan for the suicide bombing. And the Pakistans, uh, uh, you know, I've had interaction, I've come from a military family myself. But I've interacted with the so-called Taliban. And uh, while interviewing them, the, they basically had the opinion that they were against the state of Pakistan. Uh, and because of one single reason that Pakistan, its top leadership, specifically ISI and Army, were primarily fighting the war, which was the war of the United States of America. And Pakistan was completely and that was the problem. U.S. on the other hand had been asking Pakistan to fight the war in South-South Pakistan and North Pakistan to root out terrorism as the, the Taliban and there is, you know, you know the Taliban and Qaeda. And what General Kiani has mentioned was reluctant and then, you know, based on certain parameters, Pakistan did go into that war, but at that point, Pakistan suited Pakistan. And the blowback of that was that Pakistan lost 50,000 people. I was there at that point in time. There was not a single day when we were not suicide uh, bombing. So what I'm trying to understand is if the interest of US was to stabilize Pakistan and US was in peace talks, where did those drone attacks which killed Bethullah Masood, Akinullah Masood in 2009-2013 when everything was being negotiated and there was going to be a talk about potential settlement which would have been in the benefit of uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, did you, do you not think that those drone attacks and covert actions were Pakistan's Political elite, as well as the military, was on the forefront of negotiating a settlement. Those got derailed by the, the actions of the U.S. Uh, I am not sure who did that. Uh, I I'm not sure I followed. I followed you all the way to the end there, but I think. Um, um, the, the drone war and the relationship, I, I think you're right that the, that the Pakistan army during this period fighting domestic opponents uh, would tell the Americans there's only so much we can do to carry out your agenda in Waziristan because as Kayani would always put it to the Americans who were pressuring him to do more, do more, do more, he would say, I'm, I'm fighting a civil war against my own people and this has to be a war for the soldiers that I command, that is the 98% against the 2%. If it's the 60% against the 40%, we're all doomed. And the Americans were not very sympathetic to that framing because you had a generation of decision makers, especially in the US military, that had come to high rank over the course of 2006 to 2010 in Afghanistan, where they had seen Taliban forces pouring over the border, unchecked by the Frontier Corps, they were unsympathetic to the argument that the Frontier Corps was just a weak and inadequate force. They could see that these, that these forces that were killing their soldiers, their officers, were coming out of Pakistan. And they, had, they got blood in their teeth about this too. So there was, there was a lot of emotion on both sides of this equation in 2010. Now as to the drone strikes, there were eras, especially in the earlier period of the drone war, 2008, 
maybe even in some of 2009, 2010, where the Americans and the Pakistanis were secretly cooperating to use American intelligence capabilities against Pakistan's enemies. You know, Ayatollah Massoud was an easy example because, you know, he was accused of killing Benazir and he was clearly at war with the Pakistani state. And, and you know, Pasha and Kayani, in so many words, said, no problem. You know, we can't get him. If you can, do it. And, uh, but as the political consequences of a, of a stepped up secret air war against the Haqqanis, which was the US response to the lack of, of the Pakistani willingness to go into North Waziristan and actually do something about these sanctuaries, as those political consequences got hotter and hotter on the Pakistan side of the border, you know, that's, that's, that's how you get to 2011 when everything falls apart. That, that it was primed for a collapse of trust, a collapse of mutual um, sort of confidence. And as to the negotiations, you know, it's very interesting when you go through the history of the secret talks with the Taliban, and the ISI are in the middle of it too, the Americans couldn't decide how much to tell the Pakistanis about what they were really talking about with the, with the Taliban because they thought, well, on the one hand, we need Pakistani cooperation to get a deal that's going to stick. On the other hand, when we get to the serious part of the negotiation, like possible future constitutional arrangements or bringing important parts of the Taliban into parliament, when we get to that part of the negotiation, ISI is going to be on the other side of the table. We're essentially going to be negotiating against them. So if we give them too much information about what we're doing and what we're thinking, what our kind of end state goals are, we're just we're weakening our own position in the ultimate talks. And so they kind of froze on that. And they, they did leave the Pakistanis out of a lot of things. And the Pakistanis, of course, had their own collection. And they knew more or less, you know, they'd get at least three quarters right and it infuriated them. And so it, it, was, it was part of the reason why that track uh, didn't work. Yeah. OK, Tom, this is the appropriate last question. Thank you. Together and uh, it's a real page turn, ultimately frustrating mm -hmm. and depressing in a sense as you chronicle a line of missed opportunities and mishaps that have gone into this, you know, primarily from our side. I, I hope it's required reading in the White House for whatever reading it might be. <laughs> <laughs> <And> <laughs> I'm reminded that next week will be the 40th anniversary of really the beginning of all of this chronicled in your, in your first book with the revolution in Afghanistan that set up these series of wars. So I fear you might have a third volume in the making at the stalemate. <laughs> but in the early days now, or the first year of the Trump administration, we've seen Trump himself actually do something that the Afghans have been asking for, which was call out the Pakistanis. Tweets and, and, and he's done it in tweets and in speeches and so forth. First result seems to be the Pakistan responding to the Haqqani network with attacks in Kabul and stepping up right. sort of terrorist activities. I'm wondering, you know, since since now we seem to be maybe going down this road, where could this road lead? Is this, is this something that's going to move the stalemate off course, or is it just going to inflame the region further? Right. So the Trump administration has put rhetorical pressure on Pakistan called them out, also suspended aid, which was a step that the Obama administration considered but never took. Um, you know, I, th I think the problem is that U.S. leverage over Pakistan is much diminished from where it was, um, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago. Um, pa I see Pakistan in response to the Trump administration's pressure just trying to nest inside its relationship with China, which has, of course, always been its most important ally. And Pakistan is China's. China, Chinese strategists describe Pakistan as their most important ally. You know, China doesn't have a lot of allies in the way that we're used to having them. And that long relationship with Pakistan is a very important one. Um, but the, the um, you know, the Pakistanis have outlasted U.S. sanctions uh, before. Um, I think you're right to note that when the tweets were particularly hot that, and suggested maybe there would be a kind of uncontrolled escalation on the American side or a very aggressive escalation on the American side of the sort that the, the president was trying to force uh, rhetorically and by other signaling to North Korea, um, that the Pakistanis' response was to 
to test. Like, you want to see what an escalation ladder looks like in Kabul? You know, we can we can escalate too. We're the we're the ones who can uh, change the the temperature in Kabul and and at the expense of both st political stability in the country, but also an unconscionable number of Afghan lives. So now. Uh, you're, you're, you're in a moment where there's an attempt to get off the escalation ladder and see what kind of political track might be possible. And uh, I don't have a lot of faith that with the election coming and with um, you know, sort of everyone distracted by North Korea, including uh, China, that anything grand is going to happen in the next year or two. But um, uh, it would require the Trump administration to prioritize political negotiations at a much higher level than it has done to date. Um, you know, it's, it's the whole plan is being run at the deputy assistant secretary acting director level and, and uh, you know, these are smart people who are very experienced in the region but they don't have the influence to, to deliver U.S. leverage against this problem and it's a, it's a very, very hard problem as you know. So. You know, when Mike Pompeo is done ending the war in Korea, you know, maybe he can come end the war in Afghanistan. Thank you all for being here. And Ruben, this was so incredible of you to do this for us. Thank you so much for your help. No. <laughs> <laughs> we had these discussions around the table. I just to that. We've got incredible speakers and events coming up from uh, Dan Bizamoy, who's a brilliant economist. Um, Stephen Bullock, who they're saying is the next Bill Clinton from uh, the governor of Montana. We'll see. Um, is that a good thing? Uh, we have Mayor Bloomberg, Fried Zakaria, um, the act, student activist David Hogg, um, General Hayden, uh, Admiral James Winnefeld. We just have, we're just knocking it out of the park just in the next few weeks. And I hope we will see you very soon. And uh, very often. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Yeah. Back up,